0: You are listening to the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and video clips of these lectures online at edcorner.stanford.edu. What I'd like to do is welcome two entrepreneurs who are um, alumni of Stanford and who are entrepreneurs who really have got a project that I think is one of the coolest things happening on the Internet. It's called the Experience Project. Now, Armin, who is the founder, is a Mayfield Fellow. He's an alum of Stanford and a very uh, wonderful guy. He even took my marketing class and survived. <laughs> and the success of the Experience Project has nothing to do with the fact that he took Global Entrepreneur Marketing. We're glad you took it, and we're glad you're back. Um, in addition to Armin, employee number two of the Experience Project is another Stanford grad. Julio, if you look at his background, you'll see that he's quite a global citizen. He's worked in various parts of the world. He got his undergraduate degree at at, uh, Penn at a a wonderful program that they've got there, went to monitor, and then came to Stanford to the Graduate School of Business, and then was doing some entrepreneurial things before meeting uh, Armin. So Julio and Armin, I hope one of the things you do as you kick off is, explain how you two guys met. That's all, 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 always fun. And I'm going to get off the stage and let you all take it away. Julio will be interviewing Erman as part of this. And we're delighted to have you here. So welcome back to Stanford, Thank both of you. you.
1: Thank thanks. you. Thanks, Tom. Uh, it's really a pleasure for both of us to be back at Stanford. Uh, we're really looking forward to this session. I think we can learn a lot from you and your questions. So thanks for having us. Uh, I think Tina asked me to uh, be kind of the guest interviewer today because I started a podcast called I Innovate when I was back here at Stanford. And through that, got to interview a lot of entrepreneurs. And I think that Armin really was someone that stood out from a lot of the people that I met. And I really wanted to come here today and share the story um, of Experience Project through Armin, who is really one of the most passionate and devoted founders I've ever met. We initially met through one of the advisors of Experience Project, a great woman by the name of Fern Mandelbaum who has been both a great coach and advisor to Armin and the Experience Project. And we met uh, back in the spring of this year at a Starbucks uh, in Redwood City where Armin really first told me about the Experience Project, and it was just one of those, hey, you guys should just meet. You should get to know each other. I think you're going to hit it off. We never thought anything, or at least I didn't think anything was going to come of it. Um, But really I think I ended up kind of that one-hour chat really thinking, this is where I want to work after I graduate. kind of no other startup that I think is as interesting and no other founder that I think is as compelling as Armin. So it really is a pleasure to help Armin share that story with you guys today. Um, So hopefully we can try to replicate a little bit of what that first meeting was, just a chat uh, and hear the story of what Armin went through, hear a little bit more about the Experience Project um, and a lot of the things that he learned as a first time founder um, here in Silicon Valley. So welcome, Armin. Um, maybe you can start out by telling us a
2: little bit about what is the Experience Project. Okay. And before I get down that path, I just want to echo a little bit of this. Thank you for having me back. It's a really great honor to be back in, in this position. I took in many finals in this class. I fell asleep many times in this class, very comfortable <laughs> chairs. Um, so I hope to avoid that. But I think one of the unique perspectives that we'll bring is, you know, a young entrepreneur that's gone through the very same things that you've gone through in the routes, the classes, the mentalities, the, the questions. Um, and as we're talking about uh, the items that we'll talk about here, I want you to be thinking about, you know, What are the things that you're facing as you think about entrepreneurship and how it might impact your life? And feel free to uh, bring that up in the Q&A. And certainly afterwards, we're happy to take any questions. Um, So getting back to Julia's question, um, thank you for the flattering introduction. Uh, Experience Project, beyond being a very, very long domain name, um, but it has all of its vowels, so we avoided the Web 2.0 stigma there um, at the price of arthritis that we picked up typing it in. But uh, it's a site essentially based on experiences. What we do is we bring people together based on their shared life experiences uh, in order to build very customized support groups and friendship groups around people. So that's a lot of abstract terms. What does that really mean? It's probably best given by a visceral example. So just in the last two weeks we had a woman join the site. She was a young mother. Uh, her husband is in the military in Iraq, so he was deployed, and she was diagnosed with breast cancer, and she was undergoing chemotherapy. So this is a woman who felt very isolated. She has a series of things going on in her life. They were all experiences um, that had basically Let her do – you know, in her social circle, she was blessed to have people around her, her friends and family. They cared. They gave her, what I would say, generic compassion. Oh, you know, we'll be there for you. We'll help you through this. But really, what she needed to do was talk to people that were in her exact shoes. Uh, She came on the site. She signed up. She shared a few of these experiences, and that's really the architecture of the site. Um, And within hours, she had people around her that weren't just military wives, weren't just uh, cancer patients, um, weren't just mothers, but all. Of that combination. She met up with them essentially on the site and was able to know one, she's not alone, and two, to draw strength and support from people that have the most credible possible uh, interactions with her because they've been there, done that. So that's what we do in a very generic way.
1: So, Armin, um, maybe you could just tell us a little bit more about how someone actually uses Experience Projects. Kind of What does that look like when someone shows
2: up at the site? What do they do? Right. So, when you come to the site, anonymity is a key uh, characteristic of our site. We'll talk about a little bit. Oh, how important that is in the end but what people do is they sign up we take very very limited information from them just to get them participating um, and you don't want to have just drive-by anonymity you do want them to register on a site just because people take ownership and they're less likely to uh, misbehave in that sense but we just take some broad demographics are you male or female what is your age range um, and then we just say what are the five things that you consider to be definitive of you right, maybe you're a Stanford student maybe you're a law student maybe you're battling a particular health illness or a relationship issue and you express those items out there um, and then those form, essentially, the network nodes of our of our product. So on Facebook or MySpace, you know, I know you, you know another person. People are the nodes. On our site, what we do is we have the experiences form the nodes between people. So if someone is a multiple sclerosis patient and they happen to be a single mother, those form different nodes. We use those to interconnect people that are more similar. Um, so that's essentially what we do. One of our advisors and investors is Steve Blank. Uh, some of you have taken class with him. One of the interesting things he says when you're designing a product is, you really don't want to recreate – or you don't want to create something brand new on the internet. When you're building a social site in particular, what you want to do is you sort of echo what's been going on in human nature since caveman fire times, right? So since the fires, people have always been wanting to connect with people and understand them, right? That's just common sense. That's why we get together at dinner with friends um, and over time what you want to do with us is make that process more efficient, more fun to bring people together. There's a thousand people that you passed by today, any one of those people could have been a very good friend had you known which one of those people to talk to, what questions to ask, and had they been comfortable enough answering those questions, right? So what we do is we essentially make this whole system, this need to be understood, this desire to connect with people to get us, uh, simple and efficient.
1: All right, so we got anonymity, yeah. we have experiences as nodes, we have people connecting a community, meeting new people that they wouldn't otherwise have met, sounds like something that was pretty unique. I think that's mm-hmm. definitely the first reaction I had when I heard about this. Right. Uh, you know, how do you come up with something like this? Where did the idea of Experience Project come from?
2: Right. I think uh, for most entrepreneurs, it's, it's got to be driven by a passion. You hear this over and over again, um, but entrepreneurship will just completely take it out of you and every last bit out of you. So it has to come from something real. For me, um, about five years ago, um, I found out someone very close to me was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. So hopefully many of you know very little about this illness, but it tends to strike young women in their early 20s. It's a disease of the central nervous system and brain. People get inflammations in their brain and central nervous system. And it can lead to paralysis. It can lead to cognitive issues. It can lead to nothing, right? Just sort of where, you know, the so-called luck of the draw, where you get these uh, inflammations happening. Um, So when this person was diagnosed and prognosis was just sort of, well, you know, best time ever to have MS, better than 10 years ago, but we really don't know what's going to happen to you. Um, I think that was just a really huge burden to put on someone. I wanted to help. I'm not a doctor, um, but I am really good at using the Internet. So I was able to find um, a database online called pubmed.gov where all peer-reviewed research gets piped into from college all the way up to the biotech world. Um, And neurology, and in particular MS, is a huge treatment opportunity. So MS strikes young women, so you have a 60-year treatment horizon. It doesn't affect lifespan in general. It affects life quality. So it's a monstrous opportunity if you're looking at it from that perspective. So dozens of studies are getting published um, every week. Of those studies, most of them, 98%, are really mouse model petri dish long time in the future. Nothing that could impact a patient, perhaps even in their lifetime. Um, But there are a small set that, that people could actually implement in their lives in the near term. Could it be a vitamin regimen that improves fatigue? Could it be a exercise regimen that improves spasticity? I started focusing on those things, pulling them out, educated myself on what those were. And I rewrote these medical abstracts, and if you ever played around with these abstracts, they're written in jargon for almost no reason besides being in jargon. And so I was able to just turn them into more about stories that a patient might understand, and I was saying, why not just share this with the world? I created a website called thisisms.com, um, and I just started writing about four or five times a week about the things I was finding in the research world with a charter that I would inspire hope in MS patients by knowing about what else was out there besides what the FDA was approving on every 5, 10, 15-year horizon. So um, yeah. So as time went on, Google brought traffic for the content. I was using a software packaging solution, sort of these fortuitous things that happened. I was using a, a publishing solution that had a forum attached to it. And I thought nothing of it when I was building the site out. It was all about the content that I thought. Um, and as people came for the content, that was interesting to them, reading these stories was helpful. Really, the power of the site, though, was unleashed on that forum, right? because MS, in particular, is a silent illness. People don't even tell their close family members they have it. So for them to come on to a community where everyone else understood their predicament, was incredibly empowering. So they could talk about their symptoms, they could talk about their struggles, their psychological issues uh, dealing with it, this kind of burden. Um, and that was amazingly powerful. It brought people together across gender lines, across international lines. Um, and people were checking in on each other after appointments. It was amazingly powerful. And it was by nature anonymous, it wasn't by choice, it was just the software was very limited. Um, and the anonymity allowed them to talk. Um, that was a good part of it. But over time, I started to see how this actually could also be very negative, right? First of all, These people, young women in general, had so many things going on in their lives, right? They perhaps started new jobs, and careers, and new families, et cetera. Yet this site was all about MS and the fact that they were an MS patient. I think it's very unfair for any illness, any relationship issue, whatever, just say, you're a divorcee, you're a cancer patient, et cetera. There's more things going on. Um, And I thought that could actually enrich the conversation. So I think on any forums, it's sort of endemic and that the topic of the forum is what people will discuss, make sense, and then the details that actually might add richness to the conversation. You might find out another woman with MS in your neighborhood, that may be buried, like you know, thread 57, you know, post 63, it might be very repetitive, that's keep being brought up. So that's being left on the sidelines. Another thing that really bothered me is that as hopeful as we tried to make our community, um, based on research, it should have been very hopeful, It's still skews to the negative. I think any health community skews to the negative because who's posting on health sites? It's people who are not feeling well. If you're doing well, one, you're probably out doing something besides sitting in front of a, you know, a health site. Um, and two, perhaps you don't want to be the survivor's syndrome kind of thing where you're there going, hey, I'm doing great. You know, it, uh, It's terrible to be you guys and your predicament, but I'm doing fine. So I was frustrated by those things, and I started to gel the idea of, Everyone in the world faces a so-called MS in their lives, be it a health issue, be it a relationship issue, be it what school to go to. We're talking to another person that's been there and has many things in common with you can inform that decision and discussion. Um, and so why not start pulling away from just focusing on health and just let everyone express themselves the way they want to express themselves and bring that same connection and the depth that was missing, the depth that was missing from the MS site to um, basically the populace at large.
1: So at this point, what's going on in your personal life? You know, what what are you doing and how do you make the step from whatever you're doing to actually deciding to go out there and start Experience Project and start this company? Right.
2: So as Tina mentioned, uh, or actually Tom mentioned, I was a Mayfield fellow. And so I actually ended up working at my Mayfield company full time, which is Echelon Corporation. Uh, It's a phenomenal corporation. And to show you how small the world it was, uh, my boss was Tina's husband. So uh, it's uh, pretty amazing. Um, and I had a great time there. It was an amazing job. I was a product manager. I launched a product from paper to hundreds of thousands of units shipped. that traveled the world. Amsterdam and New Zealand were my areas of work, so not a bad time at all. Um, and you know the MS site was in the background. I was working on it just on you know, weekends and nights, and my primary responsibility was to my company. But as I was working on an experience project and I just started toying around with the code and building it out, I saw the potential here. I saw this as a massive business opportunity. It's also a massive ability to help tons and tons of people, you know, many times exponential to what the MS site had done. Um, and I had to start coming to grips with the idea that I might need to leave this amazingly great job. It was not a cush job. I worked my butt off. Um, but it was you know, high paying and I got to travel and I got to do all that. So coming to that decision was actually extremely difficult and I think many of you will face that. Um, and I remember you know the day that you f- finally come to grips with leaving a good job um, is when basically as Stanford students we always fight to keep all doors open right? Opportunity is the most important thing to us. We kill ourselves to make sure all of our options are open to us and you have to realize that when you're about to start a company you're gonna violently close almost all the doors in your life and you're just gonna chase one of them um, and that's not really much of an exaggeration. That's the way it is. The day that you come to realize is the door you chase with your passion and with your company is actually more valuable and the doors that will open is more valuable and outweighs the doors that you'll be closing that you can actually figure out and see, um, is the day that you can leave your company. So with that being said, it sounds wonderful, but the moment I was about to walk into Mike's office, I had a panic attack, basically. (laughs) Like, am I really going to do this? I ran to the uh, parking lot. And I called up a good friend of mine, uh, Lucas Ryan, who's now a co-founder of another company called Mogad. Um, he had just left his job, very similar circumstances, and I literally had like a child's conversation with him. You know, I said, Lucas, is this going to be okay? Am I going to be all right? Am I going to be able to eat? You know, am I gonna move in with my parents? Like, what's going to happen? Um, and, you know, he was like, you'll be fine. You'll be okay. <laughs> so started, not a very emotional guy, but uh, <laughs> a cool company that he started. Um, and so I walked in, and I, and I basically said, this is what I wanted to do, and, you know, uh, Mike was amazing about it, understood. He had been an entrepreneur himself, and that's one thing you'll always see is entrepreneurs love other entrepreneurs because it's, hey, you share that experience, you share that mentality, to chase something huge. So it's a hard decision, but once you've committed to it, it goes very quickly. So you were asking, Lucas, like, am I going to be able to
1: eat? Am I yeah. going to be able to feed myself? Yeah. Uh, kind of, when you get to that point, you have a great idea, you're really passionate about it, you're now jobless, and you don't have any income. How do you now take that and make it a real company with employees and office, you know, post box, whatever else you need to
2: have? <laughs> how do you raise money? What does that look like? Right, so that's a far-reaching type question. I think the first thing you face when you leave your, your, uh, your job and your paycheck and your health insurance is, you know, how are you going to fill in that gap, right? Because some people will take the stance that running out of money and depleting your bank account will spur you to work even faster and harder. I'm not necessarily of that camp, because I felt like I would worry so much about that issue. Uh, it would outweigh any benefit I got from driving myself harder. So I actually was lucky enough to be offered a consulting position at my old company. Um, and I can never be thankful enough for what that was. I would just go in once or twice a week and, and help them out with some of their marketing initiatives. It paid some of my bills and gave me some peace of mind in that sense. But also, it's a trade off, and I'd love to talk about this perhaps in the Q and A session. It's a huge trade off because psychologically, you're still now splitting your mind across two different things. I don't think any of us cut corners in this room, so you have to face that uh, demon. Uh, in my case, I'm really happy with the way it worked out. So once you do that, I just uh, had enough runway to start working on this. And I worked on it by myself, you know, literally in a room with a laptop, a $400 laptop that I still have, um, for two years. I just plugged away, plugged away, coded, made sure it worked. Bit by bit, I would release it, get feedback, and roll it back into the main product. Um, and I pushed this all the way to about October of uh, 2006. And, you know, sometimes fortune strikes you. I just add up party that happened to have a reporter from CNET there and I mentioned what I was doing vaguely. Uh, and the next day he wrote a two-page article on it without letting me know. So suddenly people were coming to this very, very, uh, very very pre-alpha site. Um, and it was exciting and amazing. And I think the email that I sent out forwarding to everyone had 4,000 exclamation points in it, like, check this out, I'm on CNET. Um, but at the same time, the, the, that goes very, very quickly and you realize I've got to actually back up what I've built or I could blow it. Um, so. At that point, I decided to double my team and bring on one other person, um, who is a uh, Neil Shath, who's a great engineer from Stanford. Um, actually, B.S.C.S., M.S., M.S.N.E. Uh, as many of you are too. So he joined me in October, and then we just basically decided, no more publicity. Let's make sure this product works before we get another round of press. Um, and then we pushed as far as we could without payment until uh, April of this year, actually. And at that point, we just decided to raise a small angel round.
1: So what was that uh, fundraising like? What is it like to raise money from angels? Any advice you have?
2: Um, How of that work? So the, uh, the fundraising process is always lengthy. Right? We had a really hot product and people really liked it but it still takes much longer than you think and you end up meeting tons and tons of people and having lots and lots of meetings. So it's a really intricate process. Um, I was, you know, one of the things you'll learn is that Silicon Valley seems like this really huge place but really it's about 150 people. Um, that make all the decisions and have all the money and have all the sway. So if you can meet one of them, one of them believes in you, they'll introduce you to all the rest, honestly. Everyone knows everyone else. Um, And it's a great checks and balances system as well because that 150 is just a a cream of the crop type of people. So I was introduced to a friend I'd actually worked with in an internship um, early on when I was a freshman at Stanford. He knew an angel investor by the name of Mike Maples. Uh, Some of you may know him He's a rising star. He's behind Dig, Congregate, uh, Aggregate Knowledge. Um, and a great guy and we had just met very early on when I had the idea for Experience Project and then when I was able to go back in April um, I had a product and I had a bigger team um, and showing that credibility is all the difference in the world. One of the things that you struggle with as a first-time entrepreneur and a young entrepreneur is credibility gap, credibility gap, credibility gap. As much as you seem, I think you're the smartest person in the world and you've got a great idea, the fact is all investors see tons of ideas on a daily basis from really smart people and you start to value the, um, the participants, the team, almost more than the idea at times, right? Sometimes you can make a really bad movie, and if a really famous movie star is in it, it's still going to make money, right? Versus a brilliant artsy film. So I think that's one thing that you have to constantly overcome is that credibility gap. The fact that we had a product, the fact that we had achieved something, uh, and everything that we had said we would achieve, and then some, was able to get us to open the door to Mike, who then introduced me to, in the end, seven other investors, um, and many of them you guys will know: Audrey McLean, teaches here; Steve Blank. Um, Ron Conway has invested in Google and PayPal, um, Julie Constantine, and the list goes on and on. So uh, I had the privilege of meeting these people, explaining the product. They all loved what they saw, and they saw the potential in it. And then we uh, closed that out in April and had a small war chest to go after building out the company.
1: So one question that the investors most surely asked you is, mm-hmm. how is Experience Project going to make money? So what's mm-hmm. the business model behind the company?
2: Right, so it's one thing to be a visionary and be really passionate about improving people's lives, which is what we do with our product, but you also have to obviously gird it with the fact that can this product make money in a sort of exponential fashion. So the the business model for Experience Project is not just eyeballs necessarily. It's an interesting demographic. It's 75% female on the site uh, and reaches about a million people a month, so it's a significant audience. You've got a branding opportunity there. Beyond that, what becomes more interesting is the fact that the site is all based around experiences, right? So we have a depression group, we have a water skiing group, right? We have Uh, lung cancer group, and these are things where social proof doesn't help. You know what I'm saying? On Facebook, for example, a month ago everybody was joining the Free Myanmar group, right, because there's social pressure to join these groups. Did everyone really want a Free Myanmar? Are they going to actually do something about it? Probably not, right? But on our site it's all about, well you're anonymous and you're just there's no benefit to signing up for things you don't believe in. So you're actually reaching a genuinely interested group of people within each one of these experiences, Uh, and often many of them, particularly from the pharmaceutical side, are highly monetizable. And then you extend it one more layer beyond that, right? We know multiple experiences about our users. So if you are a smoking cessation clinic and you want to reach 30 to 40-year-old women who live in San Francisco, who have perhaps one serious illness and smoke, well, we can give you that set of people. We sort of have an infinite number of focus groups. And funny enough, we just constantly get harassed by casting agents and by writers and people looking for, you know, like last week we just played someone in Prevention Magazine for a 40-year-old woman who was, you know, dieting with a diet buddy and had lost more than 40 pounds in the last year. And we were like, here's your person. So um, (laughs) we are really good at that. Uh, And you know, Google's built an entire trillion-dollar business off of the fact that when people see advertising that's relevant to them, it's okay, it's not going to be offensive. And we've always been very, very cognizant of the fact not making it creepy and not overextending our boundaries.
1: So once you actually are running the company now, there's obviously no playbook about this stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, How do you find out like, what are you supposed to do? How are you going to be successful? Who do you talk to? Who do you get
2: advice from? So um, Stanford is a huge help, is all I could say. I mean, I could just really rave about this university until uh, the, the cows come home. Um, the fact that I was in the Mayfield Fellows Program helped a lot because, well, I had many mentors, and the word mentor will just keep coming up as well. Um, I was assigned to a mentor, Kleiner Perkins, by the name of Ted Schlein, a partner, and when I was working with him. That summer he let me sit in on a Kleiner pitch and that was phenomenally powerful when I went in for my first pitch because I knew exactly what to expect from a top-tier firm. Um, But beyond that, you know, Tom's class taught me how to do the case study method and basically face adversity. He mentioned uh, there's a lot of scarring things that could happen (laughs) in GEM. Um, And uh, Tom and Tina with Mayfield training us and introducing us to people you get that sense, you get the, the grounding, you have the credibility of Stanford, but then beyond that, you really need to work with people that have been there and done that, right? It's what Experience Project is about. Um, the woman that's helped me a lot is actually standing in the back for Mandelbaum, um, who is a mentor capitalist, um, which sounds like a cheesy word, but actually means everything that it implies to me. And someone that's been there, an entrepreneur that's faced these same struggles, it's an emotional roller coaster, literally every day you think you're on the top of the world, the next day you think you're going to go bankrupt. Um, And so you need someone that can actually just say, it's going to be all right, zoom out for a second, you know, we'll get through this meeting, you know, get your next set of things going. These are things you should be worrying about. So I think it all comes back down to using the networks that you've got. You know, we're all very, very privileged to be here. Um, And the people in this room have insane amounts of ability to help you and desire to help you. um, To get attached to the people that can guide you and mentor, 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 uh, can get you through some of this and and lead you down the path. Because you really don't know what you don't know. And it sounds trite, but it's very true.
1: One of the things that also struck me about Experience Project the first time I went on the site was just how positive and supportive everyone was, which is very different than a lot of these online communities and forums that I had seen before. Uh, and I'm curious, kind of from the community-building standpoint, if you think about how to grow a community from one person to 100 people to 10,000 to a million people, how do you grow that community and maintain that
2: culture that's so important? So. Uh, critically important question. I think my background working with a health site had taught me very well that, you know, when you're the custodian of people's vulnerabilities, you have to take that very, very seriously, and you have to approach that from the perspective of this person is not just a CPM or a cost per action, but this is a person who's coming to a site because they have a need. And so I've been very cognizant of that in the design of the site. Um, And then beyond that, I consulted with more people that knew what they were doing, right? So one of my favorite conversations ever was with Katarina Fake, who started Flickr, and I just sat down with her one afternoon and three hours and twenty pages of notes later. I mean she taught me many of the things that have made Flickr the success it was, right? It's very easy for a picture posting site to turn into Pornography Central, right? And they did a very good job of making sure that it didn't go that way. Um, And really the the gist of what she said, and I hope she doesn't mind me uh, paraphrasing her, but really it's for the community builders to spend a hell of a lot of time on the site and instill that community at the very early stages. Uh, So the first 10,000, 50,000, 100,000 users, you have to be there. All the time interacting with them. And I still do all the customer service, um, sort of like in the Craig Newmark model, because it keeps me very close with the community. It's not very scalable, as you know, but um, it does let you interact and set the tone. And then after that, you can start building some tools that help the community police things. So again, Craigslist is a great example with the community flagging. Things don't stay up for more than five minutes that shouldn't be on Craigslist. The same thing with our site. And then so you have the us, you have the community flagging, and then after that, you still have to go one layer further, and we have bots that just kind of troll the site, look for certain keywords, and people, I'll tell you, get very creative with how they spell things and try and get around these bots, they figure out the patterns, um, but you can still find content that is inappropriate um, with those three layers, And but really it comes down to the culture of the site that's set at the very beginning, I think, by the owners.
1: You talked a bit about how in the beginning the importance of building out the team and having the right people around you not only to gain credibility with investors, but also, I guess, for your own well-being and the success of the company. Right. How did you approach hiring? How did you pick people? What advice mm-hmm. do you have for the group on that?
2: Yeah, so hiring obviously is a hugely important thing for a startup. You're really marrying the people that you hire, and it's really the way it works out. You spend way more time with them than anyone else. Um, You stare at their face for 20 hours a day, um, and you expect them to be able to jump in and fill in the gaps, right? So Neil and I ended up building a lot of furniture together in the early days, finding an office, setting up the health plan. Like there's a lot of stuff that goes into building a site and a company irrespective of even actually your product. Um, So going with friends in the very beginning can be a very powerful thing because you can trust them, you can open up to them, you can say, you know, this is actually really hard what I'm going through. You don't have to put on a happy face. Not everyone has that privilege. So I think when you're building out, um, particularly an internet type site, finding the person that has a combination of both computer skills as well as marketing skills. So that BScs, CS, MS, MS and e degree is actually incredibly valuable um, because there's someone who can actually help build something and then actually see the big picture while they're building it doesn't need hand-holding. There's no time for hand-holding in a startup. So sort of who you look for and then how you find them, your investors will not help you find these people. Right? Investors are really, really good at finding VPs and CXOs, but they're not going to help you find a great developer. Um, so you end up just talking to as many networks as you can. Developers are in high demand. Um, and so your networks, I met you through Fred Vandelbaum, Again, through the mentors who know people, young, up and coming people. Um, Tina, Tom, see some of the best of the brightest, right? Those are people to talk to as well. Um, do not use Craigslist. You end up finding the weirdos of the world, which we did. So uh, <laughs> um, yeah. And uh, so <laughs> really, it's going to be through your networks initially, because you do have to have that full faith. Um, there are recruiters. Just as an aside, if you are looking for developers, there are definitely recruiters that find PHP developers or Ruby on uh, Rails developers, and I was surprised to find that. I thought recruiters were really exclusively for executive class, but it is so hard to find good developers, you can actually go through a recruiter, and that's much better than Monster, or Craigslist, or posting through the alumni list.
1: I like the fact that you mentioned the, the Craigslist example. I think we've run into a bunch of yeah. funny situations with that. Someone actually once told me that um, if you're hiring someone that's looking for a job, they're probably not the, mo- the best person to hire for that job because everyone that's really qualified or is a great employee is probably already employed. So you really want to be employing people that kind of are already have a job and kind of take them away from that job and join your team. But that's kind of my little aside. I'd love to hear also just some of the big challenges, surprises you had uh, as you were starting the company and also any advice that you have for those out here in the group and out in podcast land that might be looking to one day be where you are. Right. So I think
2: uh, in terms of surprise and challenges, this is a joke that runs around the Mayfield Fellows Group, which is, even though there's an entire program dedicated to entrepreneurs, very few of them, if ever any, start companies because they realize how hard it is. So starting a company will take it out of you. I mean, again, it goes back to that passion thing. If you don't have the passion for your product and believe in it, uh, you are eventually just going to get exhausted and spin your wheels and get tired and give up because... Every single day, people are going to be questioning what you do, right? People are very supportive in Silicon Valley. If you leave Silicon Valley and you go to, for example, LA, I'm from LA, every time I bring up the topic, you know, someone wants to be smart and come up with, oh, well, is it going to work in this way? Is it going to work in that way? You're constantly facing that uh, barrage. So if you don't really have that deep passion, um, I think you might be in a little bit of trouble. We talked a little bit about fundraising. It takes a lot longer than you think, no matter how hot you are. Um, so you always have to account for that when, you know, you're basically seeing what money you have left. Um, and beyond that, I think I have a bunch of tips that I would—I actually took some cheat sheets on because uh, I think it's a really important type of question. Um, when you are raising money, you spend what you raise, right? So you really shouldn't raise a gargantuan amount of money because then you end up getting like the color copier instead of black and white copier. I mean, you will find ways to spend it very quickly, and your expectations will be that much higher. There's also a flip side to that, which I think is something that was surprising to me. When you're valuing a company, right? It always sounds great in TechCrunch. Um, and OM and all this, when you hear about companies that have these enormous valuations attached to them and everyone just scratches their head and goes why the hell is that company worth hundred million dollars and it sounds like it's a success but then you also have to think on the other side like does that just now limit their exit options right does that limit their next round of funding so Facebook is now a 15 billion dollar company they must go public or their company or their employees will never be able to cash out right so hopefully they'll be able to do that but as an extreme example other companies that you see raising 10, 15, 20 million dollars in their seed round or you know having valuations of that they're going to constantly have to increase that and that just limits with 100x return that a VC expects how they're going to be exiting so that's something to keep in mind was a bit surprising to me another thing to notice is that you think you're the center of the world because you're just focused on everything that you're working on but you're part of a very large flow right so like i mentioned a little bit before when you go in to see an angel investor or a VC you're definitely not the only person they saw it that day and that seems obvious but also what's not necessarily obvious is that there's relationships that exist beyond you and after you where for example certain angels feed companies to certain VCs and you might be seen simply because you're part of that flow and they want to see the company after you And so you need to keep that in mind as that goes forward, it's not something that's immediately apparent Um, is that you're one of many 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 and there's a lot of pre-existing relationships that you're walking into particularly as a first time entrepreneur uh, without that savvy Um, and then I'll give you yet another one which is the value of an established entrepreneur, you've heard this a million times in your classes about how the team is important to the VCs again someone who's actually been there from inception all the way to exit is worth an infinite amount of not just money but you know affection because they can be there and guide you and have been there once before and again it doesn't almost matter what kind of company they did um, but that's just infinitely infinitely valuable
1: so just one final question we definitely want to get to Q&A and hear some of your questions um, there's a lot of people in the audience here that want to start a company either right after graduating or a little bit further down the line What advice do you have for students that are sitting in the audience and are looking to start a company? When's the right time to do that?
2: How do they do that? Yeah, So uh, that's the eternal question. So my personal perspective is that the path I followed actually worked out really well. I took a job at a company where I was paired up with a lot of people who were much older than me, had been through many different cycles before. It was more of an established company, had actually gone public. and you get to learn by watching and interacting with them what the right way of management is, what are the pitfalls that they've avoided in the past. I mean, that knowledge, learning it on the fly, and learning it by fire is great, and it works, for example, for Mark Zuckerberg, but not necessarily everyone has, I think, that gift. Um, and I don't think that the, you can underestimate the value of having some experience in the corporate world um, with people, and again, in terms of the connections that opens up and the strength you gain in your own uh, ability to make decisions. That being said, I think there is a sweet spot in terms of forming a company, right, Because If I haven't stressed it enough, it takes it all out of you. So the more attachments and the more responsibilities you have in your life, obviously the harder it gets to take that (coughs) leap of faith because now you're pulling other people with you. So had I been married, had I had a mortgage, had I had an expensive car, whatever, it would be that much harder for someone to just say, I'm going to forsake that paycheck, forsake that health care, et cetera. Go and now chase something that not only maybe they can make up the gap for that salary, et cetera, but psychologically you're now going to form another relationship with something uh, that's going to always be with you. Uh, and so there is a time in your life that I think it's worth. It's easiest to take that gamble. I know tons of people that have taken this gamble in the 35, 40, 45 range and done phenomenally well because they have ways of overcoming that. I perhaps overcompensate by just working more hours versus someone who might be more efficient because they've done it before. But I do think there's a bit of a sweet spot to consider. Um, But I don't think necessarily rushing out of college and starting a company um, is the best path because you'll have more and more questions, you'll have more inefficiency. But um, really what it will boil down to, are you passionate about something enough to dedicate the next three years of your life, seven days a week to? constantly go to war for it.
1: Thanks, Armin. Uh, so I think we're going to open it up to questions now. Um, also, if time runs out and you guys want to talk to us later, we're both happy to stick around, or feel free to shoot us an email. We're happy to talk about anything you want. Uh, so any questions? I'll just repeat the questions for the mics. Yep. I had a
2: about when you said it was just you and a laptop, mm-hmm. Um, how did you balance getting feedback with any fears of giving away your idea? and Did you selectively pick certain people to bounce ideas off of, or how did
1: you handle that? So the question was kind of when you were by yourself um, and you wanted to get feedback, but at the same time could be a little nervous about giving your idea away, how did you balance that between getting feedback and making sure your idea was safe? Right.
2: I think that's a great question, um, and you'll face that. Uh, the idea of going stealth Unless you have a patentable idea, I don't think stealth really works. If you have a, you know, a web idea or social idea, the most important thing to do is get it out there and get people using it fast and first. Okay, because you're going to find out a lot from all the people using it how to make it better, as opposed to disappearing for a year on an island somewhere and coming back with a product that nobody wants um, or the wrong audience wants, perhaps the what you intended. So what I ended up doing, the strategy I followed, I to compartmentalized different sections of what became Experience Project. So in and of themselves, no one feature gave away the whole power of the site or the the vision. Um, But I would build that out, and then I would buy traffic just to that section. And you could do if you're looking for something very targeted, you can go ahead and use Google Ads to get that for 10, 20 bucks, get 50 people to the site using it. You don't need large numbers. Get that feedback, and then roll it back into the main site. So there's various strategies that you can do. Um, And also, just from the perspective of search marketing, et cetera, getting the site up and out there earlier is better. So I say don't be as afraid. Uh, of someone ripping the idea off. In the end, it's execution, and it's product quality that's going to make the difference, and that's worth it. Back. So what's next for you,
1: and, it, and um, what's the plan for EP, for Experience Project? The question is uh, what's next for Armin, and also what's the plan going forward for Experience Project? So we're
2: scaling up rapidly now. We're a team of uh, six. Uh, we have an office in downtown, and we've established ourselves for that first year. We've got tons of people using the site. The next step that we're going to take um, is the entire site right now is user-generated content, which is really, really great, and we're really proud of how it's come together. But there is a need for people to see more editorialized content. So Julio actually has been working on a lot of these things himself, these agreements with people that have wonderful things to say. They may be luminaries in their field. They may be authors but also balancing essentially the user generated the UGC content, along with editorialized content. Uh, We are very, very loath to call anyone an expert on our site because, well, what's the right diet? What's the right way of dealing with depression? Uh, There is no one right way, but it is great to see different opinions of people who have degrees and who have the experience in the books uh, to garner some attention. And people love seeing essentially some easily digestible data. So we're moving it towards that direction in this next phase.
0: Yep. Um, two questions. How many yeah. members do you have and what's your plan of monetizing? Do you use peer-to-peer or peer-recommended ad, advertising or something
2: like that? Yeah, so we don't give away our exact member number. Um, right. And so we reach about a million people a month. So if that gives you a little bit of uh, context. Uh, and then in terms of monetizing peer-to-peer, I'm not quite sure. Peer-recommended ads? Oh, peer-recommended ads? No, we actually, we're not taking that model. We're basically trying to um, utilize the fact that we can hyper-target people from that perspective as opposed to recommendations on the site. So it's an interesting model to explore, and I think Facebook will pioneer a lot of it uh, with their social ads as it goes on. And we'll definitely be watching them. But our model in the near term is to allow uh, ad publishers to go ahead and pick a group of people to target and do it that way.
1: Yep. So um, on the two-year by yourself with a laptop thing, yeah. what made you decide not to send, like, bring in a buddy or work with someone else? Yeah, that's an
2: excellent question. I'm glad you asked that. So. It's a huge struggle, right, whether you're going to build a team out very early on, um, if not, or not. There's issues, yes, with equity and so forth, but that's not the really interesting thing. For me, I actually come from a very conservative family, and, like, I wanted to prove out things. So as much as I'm an entrepreneur and I'm risky, I still have this constant nag in the back that I've got to be sure, I've got to be sure. You can never be completely sure, but for me, I didn't want to involve any of my friends on this crazy endeavor until I figured out, are people going to use it? Are people going to like it? Are people going to form strong friendships on the site? Is it going to provide the value that I think it will? Is going to create the business opportunity? So I had to take it to that point where I felt comfortable enough with that leap when I saw the feedback. Essentially, it was after that publication, the CNET publication, where I saw that those things, yes, they would work out. They all weren't perfect on day one, but I definitely saw the path to making them near perfect. And it was at that point where I was able to involve particularly good friends um, on something because you are really uprooting their life. You know, they should be excited, they'll jump in, and they did, uh, to their credit, but you do have to consider that other people's lives are now becoming intertwined with your own.
1: Yep. Can you discuss the privacy issues that you've seen with hyper-targeting and how transparent you've been with your users? So the the question was around privacy issues and hyper-targeting and how transparent we've been with the users. Yeah, so
2: obviously a very huge concern, any sort of site that deals with anything health-related. Um, we begin to mitigate the issue from the beginning because we try not to get personal information from people that would identify them uniquely Uh, we do ask for an email address we encourage people to use free email addresses right we don't want to know what town you live in your zip code so one layer of separation there Um, and then as time goes on we don't export our data out right so we're not interested necessarily in capturing all this and sending it to another publisher Um, and on the site we do want to start with the model where you just target people based on a particular group that they've explore, expressed an interest in. Right, so if they've gone on the site, they've seeked out the fact that they you know, um, are having a difficult marriage, you know, seeing an ad there will not be uh, a transgression of their privacy, particularly if it's relevant. Uh, it might even be accepted as uh, a good thing. So I don't know if that answers your question completely. Basically, I guess, okay. if, if,
1: have you seen any issues? I know it's a huge deal right now with this do not track list. Right out there
2: and any issues with your users actually discussing that with you and saying we don't want to be tracked? Sure. So in terms of tracking, there's different technical ways of approaching it, right? So we don't cookie them and follow them across the rest of the internet, so that's one step. So it's sort of when they come to Experience Project, that is the limit of their interaction about these items. Um, we have not seen any sort of community revolts or, or worries about the privacy issues except for the fact that the robot spider thinks, right? So, you, so there have been concerns that have come up every now and then about well, my stuff could show up on Google. Well, what would happen then if someone searches for it and finds it? And what we find is, well, most cases, personally identifying data that would bring this back to you specifically doesn't add anything to a story, uh, naming someone's name or a city or whatever have you. So usually with simple intervention there, where we tell people how to keep their stories anonymous and how to prevent revealing exactly who they are, we've been able to mitigate that problem further.
1: Yeah, right here at the front. You mentioned finding somebody in a specific age range yeah. in a specific city um, in a category. Did you put an ad in the general category and say that you're
2: asking for the, that city and that age range, or how did you? You mentioned finding somebody very specific.
1: Mm-hmm. So uh, you want to repeat? Yeah, you had mentioned before mm-hmm. finding a very specific person, someone in a certain age range in a city in a certain category. Question was, how did you find that person? Did you put an ad out in a paper, or how? How does that work? Oh well, yeah, and then how do you protect their privacy? And how do you protect their privacy?
2: Right. So essentially the targeting happens in that we can do filtering on the site with the various experiences that people have said, and we can figure out who that group of people is. We can then message them on the site. We don't transgress into their personal email or whatever. And we present them with an opportunity, right? which is, okay, for example, this prevention writer is creating a story about X, Y, or Z. Would you be interested in participating? At that point, we then act, if they're interested, and they oftentimes are very, very interested, um, we then act as a middleman until we're comfortable. Um, and so we don't reveal their personal data to the other side until this person fully understands what they'd be doing, um, and then we never link their username on the site with their personal data that we pass on to the reporter. So we try and do a double-blind wall. Yeah.
1: Tina.
0: So Armin. Yes. What keeps you awake at night? What's the mm-hmm. biggest challenge going forward?
1: Uh, so I think the biggest
2: challenge. Oh, you wanna? Tina just asked What's the biggest challenge? What keeps you up? Keeps you awake at night? I keep cutting Julio off. He's trying to make sure this stuff gets uh, recorded. Um, so what keeps me awake at night, three hours that I sleep? Uh, it's, <laughs> it's not a worry about competition. It's a worry about making sure people find out about our site. We get literally hundreds of love letters a day from the people using our site and Julio's seen these. My entire team sees them all the time. I forward them on like a little kid. Um, they're just gushing love letters because the site improves people's lives. Finding out that you're not alone, finding another person that gets what you're going through, is an incredibly empowering thing, and it can change lives. And in some cases, it can save lives. We were in last, uh, last month's cover story of Forbes, because one of the women on the site credited us with saving her life. Um, so what keeps me awake is the idea of how do you get the word out about this site? How do you make sure people find out about it? How do you make sure the culture continues to stay the same and very healthy and supportive? Sort of Oprah, not Jerry Springer, um, is very important to us. Um, and you know, building traffic and building awareness is is a very, very complicated task, right? We don't have the viral aspects going for us that a MySpace does where you just invite 500 of your friends because you want to up your friend count and be popular. Uh, That doesn't necessarily work on our site. You know, we talk about the things that you wouldn't necessarily express on a MySpace or Facebook along with the rest of your uh, personality. So for me, I'm just constantly trying to figure out ways to get the word out. and in the right way, right, you don't want to just blast out. You could give away a car tomorrow and sign up a million people, but that might not really be uh, the right audience for you. It might actually destroy your community. So we have careful, measured growth on this site. You know, with the, with the, it's a very strong community meeting. So again, don't bring in a million people overnight that have nothing to do with it. But you still got to grow uh, in order to make your advertising model interesting and create enough liquidity in that market and so forth. So I would say that that's the biggest thing, is just how do you get the word out. Yep. So it seems like all entrepreneurs have this type of mindset how did you develop
1: it through college? The mm-hmm. question was, it seems like all entrepreneurs have this type of mindset. How did you
2: develop this through college? Yeah. And what exact type of mindset? <laughs> Is like an openness, a type of, <coughs> um, like, ideas
1: seem to permeate through mm-hmm.
2: think, you know, able to grasp ideas? Thank you. <laughs> 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 I might turn red. Um, so, <laughs> No, I, I don't know. I, I would say... I think Jeff Bezos says it really well, you know you're an entrepreneur where when you're taking a shower in the morning you're thinking about how to improve the shower head and how to make the water cool, <laughs> right? So uh, I think that, that might be sort of a natural inclination to want to improve things. And so I built this MS site that was just really great, right, and I might have been content with that because I had a great life going and everything was fine, but I kind of wanted more. I saw a different way to help people. Um, and I think in the end entrepreneurs want to improve. If you're never satisfied with the status quo, that might be the very core trait of, a, of an entrepreneur. And then you also have to be amazingly stubborn and tenacious to just keep pushing. Because, as I said, people are just going to keep trying to shoot you down. For whatever reason, they're going to try and do that. Um, and you're just going to have to be stubborn and go through it and believe in what you're doing. And obviously be intelligent enough to know that what you're you know, spouting is actually sensical uh, and can prove it. But I think that might be the core thing.
1: Just one more clarification on that. two years without with yeah. the laptop. Was that before you quit your job or after? <laughs> <laughs> question was uh, the two years uh, alone with the laptop. Was that before or after you quit your job? I spilled
2: water on myself. That was good. Uh, no, it was definitely after. <laughs> so uh, when, uh, when I was working at Echelon, I was working on the MS site as sort of a hobby. And that was a very limited site, limited reach, limited group of people. And so that was something that I could manage on my own. But when I started rolling with Experience Project and after the first couple stages and I saw that this is going to be huge and it requires all your effort, you also see that the window is closing. If you start working on something, you see the opportunities there from the business side and from uh, a user-based side, you've got to throw your time into it. So that's when you kind of make that decision, cut the cord, um, and then continue on. Like I mentioned before, I had the benefit of having some salary coming in because I was able to consult, but that probably extended you know, if I hadn't done that, maybe I would have finished in a year and a quarter or something, as opposed to two years. Um, but I'm pretty content with the way things worked out. Jeff? So when the, when you uh, convinced your second business partner to join you, yeah. how did you persuade him to sort of stop what he was doing and work on this full time without being paid? The <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, question was, uh, how, do you pers- how, how did you convince the kind of business partner, second person to join on, Neil, to stop whatever he was doing and
2: uh, join the team? and mirrors. No, uh, (laughs) I wish he was here to answer that himself. Um, one is, I'll speak for him. He has to trust the person that's presenting this opportunity that, and he knows me. We've known each other since freshman year. We lived just down the hall from each other in Otero. Um, and so he knew that I wouldn't present this opportunity to him unless I was really, really sure that this was gonna go somewhere interesting. Also, from perspective of a job, I mean, uh, you, know, you had been working at Accenture, he had worked at Microsoft, he had seen some interesting corporate experiences. This was a chance to really expand out, um, and I think that is very enticing for start, early term startup employees. You're not going to make as much, you're, you know, you're going to work a lot harder than taking a job at Google or um, Microsoft, but you're also going to take on a ton of responsibility, and you wake up every day knowing that the success or failure of X, Y, or Z project or company is really on your back, right? And I think Julia is probably a good person to answer that as well. If you want to chat with him afterwards.
1: Do you have any regrets or what are some lessons that you've happened to learn along the way and things that you would not do again but perhaps have gained positive knowledge from? question was around any regrets, anything uh, that you wouldn't do the second time around or anything that you've uh, learned along the
2: way. It's <laughs> um, a great question. I think the, uh, the regret I would have was trying to take this all on by myself for so long because it's just an immense task load. Um, and we've just been talking about, when do you bring on a friend, it's sort of a counterbalance of how comfortable are you taking that risk with another person. Um, I wish we had built out the team earlier because it's just infinitely helpful having brilliant people like Julio and Neil as part of my team that I can count on, you know, it gives you the chance to maybe go away for a Saturday and not worry about the site um, because somebody else is keeping an eye on it, that kind of thing. So I would say that would be perhaps my, my er- biggest regret was not involving more people early on. Um, yeah. Yeah.
1: So you said you brought on your friend without paying me,
2: without
1: paying mm-hmm. That how many people did you bring on before you got venture and When you did, like how much money did you
2: pay mm-hmm. yourself and all your friends? <laughs> I'm not at liberty to share all of these details. Um, well, when you have no money to pay someone, you use your equity, right? And your equity is worth something. Um, what it's worth is a, a long discussion, especially for any sort of web property that has a revenue stream in the future. Uh, It's really hard to put evaluation on it, but there are, again, leading through your mentors, talking to them, figuring out what would someone with this experience, with this runway of no cash payment, what would they get, and then, you know, you try and give maybe a little more than that, actually, um, to balance out a little bit of the risk. So, you know, and in terms of what you pay yourself, if you're a first-time entrepreneur, (laughs) I can't answer this directly, but if you pay, if you're a first-time entrepreneur, one of the things you always want to do is prove yourself out before essentially accepting too much in terms of the way of payback. So you pay yourself a subsistence wage. And that's actually not that much. You can actually get by with quite quite little money. Yeah.
1: Um, you briefly mentioned about like, uh, water like mm-hmm. what were your um, marketing strategies that you used at the beginning to kind of generate? It? The question was, what were some of the marketing strategies you used at the beginning
2: to grow the site? Um, sort of an eternal question we used the fact there's a lot of other large sites that you can parasite off of right so before the facebook platform myspace was very very open right you could just write anything you wanted and it would run on MySpace, run on myspace um and so we did build widgets for myspace very early on that tried to integrate some aspects of our site with them um and that brought a lot of tr- pretty good traffic a little younger traffic uh, it does again get the site stretching its legs a little bit trying to use search engine marketing um is not usually the best method for sort of a broad site. And we took the hard tack first, right? We're not a health site. We didn't pick like one particular vertical to go after, which makes life much easier when you're launching it, because you can describe it in one word. You figure out where to advertise. You know your keywords. And you know, we had this sort of broad. We wanted everyone to be their whole selves. So search engine marketing is almost excluded from that, except for particular tiny bits of your site. So really, I would say it was trying to parasite off some of these larger sites that you could. Another thing that helped a lot was, you know, being on the front page of Dig a couple of times uh, was really helpful. Front page of Delicious was really helpful. Um, StumbleUpon is a godsend for any new site. Uh, I don't know if you guys use it, but it's just cool sites, and then people say this is a cool site, brings more people to your site, um, and can start quite a bit of vortex. So sort of the social uh, recommendation sites can really help out broadly interesting sites to begin with, and that really helped us in the beginning. And I would say StumbleUpon probably more than anyone else.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, I touched on this a little bit earlier, but can you be a little more specific on how, uh, like, I don't want to say secretive, but how careful you were about telling your idea in the early stages to other people and, like, who you tell that to? Would you just tell to any venture capital friends? Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. Question was just a little more specificity around how secretive you were in the
2: beginning. Who would you tell your idea to? Would you just tell it to anyone or friends, venture capitalists? Yeah. Certainly among friends, you need to tell them. <laughs> I mean, like, keeping secrets from your very close friends would drive you insane trying to tell your family they had no idea what you're doing, right? So, for most people. So don't even bother with that. Um, Yeah. I I think my mom just a month ago said, I finally know what you're doing. Um, That was satisfying after three years. So uh, don't worry about that. When you talk to um, the investment community, that is a really relevant question. So the wonderful thing about starting a company and working with angels, angels are usually former entrepreneurs that really want to help young companies succeed. Okay, so they know the risks, the balances. They're not as concerned with, you know, um, VCs are generally bankers, right? So they know bottom line, they know revenue, et cetera. Um, and angels are also more selective about building out their clientele, so to speak. Reputations are very, very critical. They can't just be you know, damned if you you know, don't like me, et cetera. Like, they know that you're gonna go talk to 20 of your other Stanford friends and tell them not to go to this angel if they screw you. So talking to angels is actually somewhat of a safe thing to do if you pick them out. Um, you're not gonna talk to a ton of them. They can't do as much damage. They just don't talk to as many people as a VC does. They don't fund as many companies as a VC does. Um, and again, they understand your predicament quite well. Talking to a VC is a totally different scenario when you're a seed stage company and you just don't have that much, particularly if you're a first time entrepreneur. Um, most VCs seem pretty legitimate. Some are sharks, as they say, right? And there's an entrepreneur in residence that randomly shows up at your meetings and you know, what is that person's job? It's to listen to cool ideas and eventually build them out inside the company. So proceed with caution with VCs. Um, they're not, I've never met, honestly, I'm very lucky. I don't think I've met a bad VC, um, but I've definitely heard the horror stories. Um, and also, one thing that you'll learn very quickly, most VCs will meet with you, right? It's not a big deal actually to get a VC meeting, even at the top tier firms, because it's an hour of their time to hear a really cool idea from someone who's either going to start this company or 10 other companies in the future. So they'll take a lot of your meetings. You need to be very selective on that. It's just a little bit of a rush when you're like, oh my gosh, you know, Kleiner wants to meet with me. You, know, you have to maybe stop for a second and say, is this really something in their sweet spot? Am I realistically going to get funded by these guys? Or am I just going to go and educate someone about a really cool idea? Um, and so you keep that in mind. But I think starting with the Angels is the right step for a seed stage company. And then after that, you're strong enough, you've got your backing, you have people behind you, where walking into a VC isn't as risky as it was when you were tiny. Yep. You came out of Stanford and then
1: you know, did, did something else for a while right. and then came to start your, your company. Um, in between there, can you tell me a little bit more about how maybe some of your connections
2: with Stanford helped you to build a network of advisors and, and how you initially formed um,
1: mm. more advisor relationships. Mm. So you left Stanford, did something else for a little while, um, somewhere in between you decided to start this company. Um, the question was really about how, how was your relationship with Stanford and having been here uh, help you form that network of advisors? Sure. I I'm at
2: the UN here. <laughs> <laughs> Julia's <laughs> translations. Same language, though. i kind of odd about that. Um, so I think that's a, that's a neat question. Uh, I left. I was still tied to Stanford. I would come back for a lot of the entrepreneurship-type uh, events. Um, and particularly, Tina Seelig is incredibly helpful. And Tina actually introduced me to Fern. Um, so when I had the idea and I was ready to sort of come out to the Stanford community with it, I emailed Tina, and she graciously met with me. And then she introduced me to Fern, which then led to uh, so many other good things. So it's basically keeping in touch with the professors that you really, really respect and have the, they themselves know everyone, right? Um, and don't fire your bullets if you don't have them, right? I mean, wait until you have something interesting that they can actually help you with. And if they do help you with, you're not, you know, perhaps uh, hurting their credibility kind of thing if it's too early stage. Um, But you have this community, don't neglect it, they really care about you, and they really believe in what they're teaching. Like Tom and Tina really believe in seeing their students come out and become entrepreneurs, and they're really willing to bend over backwards to make that happen. Um,
1: You mentioned that your advisors are very helpful in keeping you grounded and helping you to see the big picture. Can you talk about how angels help you make your decisions and how involved and hands-on they get with your company? question was around how do, how do the angels help you make your decisions and
2: how involved are they with the company? So angels bring a different skill set to the game. Um, they are not going to be as tactical. Like they're not going to tell you, oh, you should really pursue hiring this person versus that person. They're much more, okay, this company is at this stage, it's raised this much money, this is your valuation, your future potential is you know, X, Y, or Z, you need to raise this much at this point. These are the people you need to start talking to, right? They're very, very helpful in sort of setting the timeline of your company um, and introducing you to your next round of funding. That's their goal, right, Just to get you um, basically established. Uh, They could also introduce you to people that will fill in strategic gaps in your company. So if you need someone to dive in and really be a chief marketing officer for a month or a couple weeks because that is a problem you're, you're dealing with, for example, a positioning issue, and you need someone really expert to come in, your angels can say, you know what, I brought this person in, he worked at my other companies, and again, why is it the angels that's working with these people? Why is that important? Because the people they'll bring in understand early stage companies, right? They understand the not only the remuneration, but also the team that they're going to be dealing with and the psychology of it. So they can help very, very strategically from moving you forward. And again, those issues they might help with are going to be on the path towards getting you that next round of funding or selling your company or whatever have you in that sense. But it's mostly financially oriented. Yeah, last question. Mm-hmm.
1: How did you decide how much money to raise from on your angel round?
2: So you as an entrepreneur will probably underestimate how much you need to raise um, because you figure out, well, I've been doing this on ramen noodles for the last two years or whatever. It doesn't cost all that much money. Um, and your angels will actually help you push that number up. And that happened in our case where I wanted to raise one number and they uh, told me to raise a higher number because why? They've done it before, and they know how much money it takes, how much your lawyers are going to take out of that first chunk of money you raise, which is an enormous amount, by the way. Um, <laughs> it's so hard to write those checks. And uh, so uh, I think you figure out, one, how big does your team have to be, how much you're going to pay them, what are your obviously, I mean, simple spreadsheet-type things. And then there's a buffer zone that you need to meet with someone that has started a company and has raised a round of funding that knows what that margin is on top of that. Um, and then I would say, even on top of that, raise a tiny bit more, because the fundraising process is so time-consuming, and it takes a person out of your company to basically go do it the next time you run out of money. Uh, and so having the right amount of money can be a huge help, whether you hit or miss in the field. So. On
1: behalf of BASIS and STU, I'd like to thank Dewey and Armin for speaking thank you. today. Thank you. Thank you.